Father in heaven, give us please soft hearts that we might hear your voice. Help us to see how the way in which our current culture um, shapes and changes us. Help us please to know what it means to be in the world but not of the world. Help us to know how to live faithful lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you were here last week, or indeed if you've just been listening through the service, you might remember we're in a slightly unusual season for us as a church, and that is we're doing something a bit more topical on our Sunday mornings, just for six weeks or so, thinking about our current world, some of the characteristics and trends that we, we are all in, and yet how Jesus is still such good news. So we're thinking about the world in which we live in today, and then thinking hard about what it means to live for him in that world and to share him into that world. As Jill was explaining to the little ones and the rest of us, um, we're particularly kind of calling it the iGen culture. Um, that is, those who have always had internet access and therefore those who are kind of born 1995 onwards. Um, but of course it is all of us. Uh, I know in our home group as we were chatting on Wednesday and I know from conversations with many of you, that, that, that this shapes us. That phones shape who we are and what it means for us to live for Christ. Um, so the I stands for internet, but it also stands for, again, as the kids were seeing, an individualism. Um, there is vast amounts of information that you can process from the internet. Um, but now we do that as individuals, not so much in bodily community where there's discussion back and forth, but simply you read it from a screen, you scroll through. Of course, I'm simplifying things as well. It's certainly worth saying that as we talk about the iGen culture, and as you would talk about millennials perhaps for a slightly older bunch, um, we'll chat a bit about millennials today as well, it's not as if everyone is the same, of course. It's not as if everyone has the same tendencies or characteristics, but if you look at the big picture, sociologists have shown, simply speaking, that there are, are recognisable traits that set that culture and that grouping apart from different cultures, different generations. Um, you can look at the numbers, it, it, it works, it's a reality. But obviously not everybody is the same within that. So, so if I say, this is what iGens are like, um, that may not be you, but it may well be the bigger picture. It may well be the West more generally, um, and the numbers seem to point to that. The quick question, though, is how can we flourish and thrive in the culture we're living in? Um, and so what we're doing in these six weeks is we have a sort of longer introduction than normal, and then we'll open the scriptures and try and read those scriptures through the lens of the week. Um, so last week, um, as Jill was telling the kids, we thought particularly that the world is changing. We're in the midst of an unprecedented technological advance. You buy something and two months later it's out of date and obsolete. Um, we are a family with mini-discs. We bought them and then the MP3s came out. And what a waste of money. But more than that as well, more than just the world changing, we are being changed by the world. So how we communicate is, is being shaped and altered. And well, last week we thought about what it means for us to be believers as bodily creatures. God made a physical world. We have bodies. And God established that words and bodies usually go together. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
But it's easy for that not to be the case now, isn't it? It's easy for us to text at a distance. It can be less awkward. And so what is that doing to us, and how should we think about that? They're the kind of questions we thought about last week. And then it impacts on things like church. Why are so many churches putting out online campuses where you can attend church virtually from the comfort of your own duvet and not have to deal with people who are annoying? People like folk in the room here. I mean, it's the reality, isn't it? We, it's easier for us to not come at times. You can sing along to YouTube, you can download a sermon, and hey, how'd you fix But no, the Lord made the church that we might bodily meet together and encourage each other and shape and mould and challenge each other. That's how he did it. And so this week we are thinking about the concept of adulting. It was probably back in 2008 from a single tweet that the word adult became a verb. It's been particularly popular in the last two two or three years. And essentially, it refers to the fact that for many millennials onwards, which is about 1977 onwards, depending on who you read, there is often a delayed development now. By and large, in the West, millennials go through life stages much, much later than previous generations did. So millennials and onwards will become parents if at all, at a later stage than the previous generation in the West. Or they will buy a house, if at all, at a later age than the previous generations. There's a concept called boomeranging, which you may have heard of, and that is where the early 20s, particularly coming out of college, come back home again. Sometimes for financial reasons, but sometimes just for needing to have a feeling of security in the shallows before a full-time job and the responsibilities that that entails. Of course, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's actually creating wider family communities, multi-generational houses, assuming there's interaction between the generations, that much more like what you'll find within the scriptures in one sense. Where does this idea, though, of adulting come from? Why is it even a thing nowadays? Well, it might be at a sociological level simply to do with the fact that there are smaller families now in the West. For various reasons, people are choosing to have fewer children, fewer kids. And so they invest more in those kids. It's a a depth over distance thing. It's a quality over quantity thing than in decades gone by. And so one writer puts it like this. Today's teens follow a slow life strategy common in times and places where families have had fewer children and cultivate each child longer and more intensely. So it means there's a really long-term view in mind often when it comes to parenting. The, The treadmill starts very young, doesn't it? You've got to get the kids into the right primary school to get the right SATs results, to get the right secondary school, to get the right GCSEs and A-levels and the right university, and then the good degree and then the right job. And of course, alongside that, you've got to have a multiplicity of hobbies and sports and piano lessons to, to fill the week and to embellish the CV. And that you compare that to a more subsistence economy, maybe in more deprived areas, where the focus is simply getting through the next season. But in the West, we take this huge approach. Lots of investment. 
which of course means lots of the responsibility perhaps for this idea of adulting or in being no, in no hurry to adult actually comes with the parenting philosophy of the time, of where we are now as parents. Sometimes people talk about helicopter parents, hovering over your kids, doing everything for them, giving them a huge allowance so they don't need to go and get a job before college or before um, A-levels. They don't need to experience the working world until after uni. Again, sociologists can show the reality of this. It's a real thing in the West. Or, or, or you can see how we, we drive our children everywhere now, which means they don't learn to drive until after university. Again, don't mishear me, of course. This is not the case for everyone, but studies have shown there are tendencies towards this. It seems to be a reality in the world that we live in. Big picture, society levels seem to show this in the West. Just as a sidebar, of course, to complicate things, it's worth mentioning that at the same time, um, young kids are looking like and acting as if they are older as well. So some have said through the proliferation of porn on the internet means that people are unhelpfully exposed to stuff at a very young age, and there's a sort of a kind of maturity that comes. Or maybe there's the trend for inappropriate, sexy clothes for young girls. On social media, I often see people petitioning to get major retailers to, to change their designs, adult-style T-shirts for an eight-year-old girl. You've got that going on at the same time as well. But in terms of responsibility and growing up, big picture, macro level, it seems to be an agreed thing in the West that youths of every racial group and class and context are growing up more slowly. In fact, if you are a millennial, maybe you have had a quarter-life crisis. A quarter-life crisis is an increasingly popular phrase. Um, it's not so much the younger iGen, but the, the millennials. And it's, um, LinkedIn found that 75% of 25 to 33-year-olds report having a quarter-life crisis. One writer puts it like this. It's the dawning realisation that you've reached the age by which you assumed you would have it all figured out, only to find that you don't. She continues, the QLC creeps up around birthdays and New Year's Day and rears its head any time you see on social media that someone you went to school with has gotten engaged or gained a promotion or, or simply had the audacity to look happy in a photo. It's the uneasy realisation that comes when you take stock of everything around you, the people, the places, the relentless routines of, of work and washing dishes and wonder, is this it? Maybe you can associate with that. Maybe the QLC really is a thing. But I want to humbly say to us, and I include me in this, because I think we can all, of a younger generation, younger-ish generation, particularly, particularly associate with this, but there is a problem with the concept of delayed adulting. This delayed desire or ability to, to take and to deal with responsibility is not a good thing. I think it, it's the fruit, actually, of a wider societal thing. I mean, it largely springs from the idea that freedom means no responsibility. 
In our culture, in our world, freedom, in many people's minds, means no responsibility. To be free means not having to do jobs or hard things. To be free means that we can be comfortable. We can fill our diaries and our weeks and our lives with the things that we choose to fill them with. It's the idolatry of comfort. And, and we bow down and worship. It's the sacred modern value that says, I'm only free when I get to do what I want to do and when I want to do it. And if that's true, and if that's the air that we breathe, if that's the water that we swim in, of course, adult responsibilities are, are a thing to be avoided for as long as possible. And yet, I want to say it is actually a misunderstanding of something of what it means to be a human. Come back with me, please, in your Bibles to um, Genesis 1 and 2. And as we did last week, we'll try and have a look at the initial blueprint perhaps to see how that ought to shape our thinking on these kinds of things, to think about our culture through the lens of Scripture. I want you to see that, in a sense, God did not finish his, his creation. Yes, he finished it and he rested and it was good, and he enjoyed it, but isn't it striking that there was still work to do? It shows how hugely dignified our work and our responsibility is. So have a look down with me at uh, 1 verse 20. Let's go from 1 verse 26, which is actually on page 3 if you have one of the church Bibles. And through on to page 4. Um, familiar words for many. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So do you see the big picture job description for humanity under God is to spread out and to subdue. Which is striking because at this point they're in the garden. So the garden was never meant to be the end game. There was always a world to fill. But then just flick over to chapter 2, or flick across the column to chapter 2, and you see something of what it sh means. We get some colouring in to show us what filling and subduing looks like. Um, so Genesis chapter 2 and verse 5, look. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no one to work the ground. Or scrabble down to verse 15. The, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. See, in chapter 2, we get a, a different perspective on creation. You like, we, we get the, the grassroots level. We get to see what's going on rather than up high as in chapter 1. And in a sense, the end of God's creating work is the beginning of humanity's work. So 2 verse 5, why had no shrub yet appeared? Well, partly because there was no rain, look. But also because man had to work the ground. And so verse 15, he does work the ground. 
Man is in the garden, he works it and takes care of it. He makes it fruitful and ordered and productive. And it's a, it's a privilege, it's a responsibility. There is work even before the fall. There is work even in paradise. Work, work is necessary, work is good. Work is positive, it's how God designed the world to function. It is what, in a sense, it is what you were made for. In part. Someone's put it like this. Work is not primarily a thing one does to live. But the thing one lives to do. And of course it's not necessarily through paid employment. Working and cultivating might be loading the dishwasher again. Changing nappies again. Making the lunches again. Tidying away the chaos of toys again. Or gardening. Or, or getting on with the financial admin. Or, or perhaps we might say adulting. Work is necessary. Work is good. We were made to work. And yet now since the fall, of course, as we walk out on God, Genesis chapter 3, as we choose to go it alone and everything is out of kilter now. Work is ruined and often hard, and there are thorns, and there are thistles, and it is frustrating, and, and the duvet does feel really warm sometimes. But we were still made to work. We were still made to take responsibility. Work is inherently good. There's a whole lot more you can say, or we could say in terms of work, of how we work now, and who we work for now, and all that kind of stuff. But that's a discussion for another time. But just for now, notice that your work matters. It really matters. There is an inherent dignity and a goodness in our work. But you know, in our culture, that is a challenge for us as believers, I think. Because so much of our society's thinking, and so that easily, therefore, our thinking becomes, well... I dream of a place of no work and of no responsibilities and a time of rest. You know, if I were to, um, to ask you to, to write down or to draw a picture of paradise, I don't know about you, but I think of, of sun and sea, sandy beaches, palm trees, peace. And those things are good things. But in the Bible, at the heart of paradise in the garden is... Work. And yet, if you're anything like me, we can live for the evening, we can live for the weekend, we can live for holidays, or we can live for retirement. But if this is true, if Genesis 1 and 2 are true, if that is part of the blueprint of what it means to be human, to be made in God's image, to take responsibility an inherent dignity and value that comes from work, then the concept of adulting, to use an iGen word, is problematic. Because God made the world in such a way that we were to input and take responsibility and be fruitful and, and not to avoid it for as long as possible. Now, of course, rest is important. We were made for that as well. But work is there at the beginning. 
And you see, Jesus says to us, if we are fearful of taking responsibility, Jesus says, I have got good news for you. I've got such good news. Come to me. Come to me and be the person I made you to be. Come and be mature and whole and productive and engaged and fruitful. Come and have dignity. Come and trust me and serve me. Come and work as if for me, he says. And if that's the foundation, again, there's a whole lot more we could say. But just because of time, I want us to squeeze on to Ephesians 4, um, as Andrew read for us. So if you could um, zoom ahead. I've lost my page. If somebody wants to shout out a page number. 1175. Thank you. 1175, if you have a Burgundy Church Bible. I'm just going to focus in on 11 to 16. And again, I'm jumping halfway in um, to an argument And this is, of course, not primarily a passage about adulting, of course. It is a passage that describes something about what God expects of us as Christians and of us as as a church, in fact. It's actually a letter to a group rather than individuals. But I think there are principles and ideas here that we can glean to help us as we kind of read it through the lens of adulting. So let me read those verses again for us. Just briefly, so, verse 11, bottom of that first column. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Um, Before we jump in, just a bit of context Um, Remember, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, and it is a disunited church. There seem to be some factions. There seems to be a bit of squabbling going on, particularly Jew and Gentile factions in this context. And, And yet he reminds them theologically that the dividing wall of hostility has now been removed. There is only one church. There is one body, he says. But then he reminds them as well practically what that means for them. The way they're to treat each other, to relate together. There is no room for factions and squabbles. But more than that, have a look down, for example, at verse 3 of chapter 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit. You are called to one hope when you are called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so he will then go on a little later to talk about things like humility and gentleness and kindness and truthfulness and patience and love. So there's a theological truth, but then an outworking practically. Be united, Ephesian church. Be united, Magdalen Rose. But then the other thing just to point out to you as we begin in these verses is that we are founded again upon the word of God. I've said that before here, 
um, at Magdalen Road. But when we walked out on God at the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, we said we didn't want you in charge anymore, God. We, we don't want to have the perceived shackles of his word over us anymore. We doubt his goodness. We doubt his truthfulness. We sin. We don't want to live under that loving rule anymore. And yet now in the church, in the reconciled humanity, we're united together, lives joined together, but that is under his word again. So again, have a look at verse 7, chapter 4. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. It's a picture of Jesus giving gifts to his church. And so what gift does he give? Well, verse 11, so Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. That is the gifts that the church needs foundationally in one sense are these word Bible gifts. Apostles, prophets, pastor, teachers, evangelists who will open God's word so that then the body will function and mature. As it does its work in our lives, we grow and we mature and we flourish. And so you get, for example, verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up, do you see? until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attained to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God doesn't shower down the gift of maturity upon his people. He doesn't shower down the gift of maturity upon his people. He, he wants us to grow in that. And so he gives us the tools to help us grow. That's the context. Let me just show you three ways in which this maturity is worked out for believers in a church. I think it's there. I think it's in, in how we think and in what we say and in what we do. Think, say, do. So how we think. Have a look at verse 14. See, Christian maturity is a maturity in how we think that means we are robust and thoughtful and thought through as believers. We're not blown here and there by different fads and ideas and every wind of teaching, as he puts it. When there's a maturity in our thinking, there's a steadfastness and a security that comes from the Bible being unpacked and understood and church bodies growing in maturity. God's word doing its work within us. We know what truth is. I wonder if the danger can be, perhaps especially with all the solo time that we all spend online now, that we take in ideas and personalities, we are overly moulded, we consume, we watch passively, we read passively, we are, it's readily available, it's easily believed. Whether it's binging on the box sets or flicking through social media or your various YouTube subscriptions... Our phones are discipling us. Our phones are discipling us. Here's a question for you to discuss at home groups. And I'm not sure I'm courageous enough to do it. But what about if you compare the time you spend online, consuming there, with the time you spend praying or reading the scriptures? Now, clearly, that's a complicated question. And clearly, there are, you might use your phone for Bible study, all that kind of stuff. 
But if we saw last week, was it the average American male in 2018 adults spent three and a half hours on their phone every day? Then how much are our phones discipling us? Technology is bombarding us. It's shaping us. And our thinking then is being influenced. I wonder if it does cause us to be tossed back and forth. And so we need God's word to be at work within us. Challenging us, contradicting us. I don't know what every wind of teaching means here for Paul. I don't know what's going on in the Ephesian context. Maybe some kind of Christian heresy. Maybe some kind of worldly thinking. Presumably they were being rocked by it as he mentions it. But I do know he wants them to grow up in godly ways in how they think. Christians to be wise, shaped by the word of God. Friends, we mustn't get this muddled. We're to be childlike in our faith and simple trust of him, but not childish. That distinction is really important. Elsewhere, Paul says he has put childish ways behind him. But he wants them to mature in how they think, in how we think. Number one, think. Number two, say. Words are really powerful. Again, we thought about this last week. Embodied words, even better. But in this passage in the church, the word of God is not just for apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers to speak. The word of God is for everyone to speak. See verse 15? Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. We, we need a culture in church where it is okay to speak and to apply the gospel to each other. Where it's not a weird thing to do that. There isn't a kind of awkward conversational gear change and someone Jesus dukes you. But I think speaking the truth is love, speaking the truth in love is that. It is helping one another to remember the gospel. That is the truth in Ephesians that Paul is talking about. It's not. You know, actually, come to think of it, I'm not sure that shirt really does suit you. I don't think that's the speaking the truth and the love he's talking about at all. It's the truth of the gospel. It's helping one another lovingly to apply the gospel to every bit of our lives, to, to rub it in, to see where it applies, where, where we tick the box but don't really believe the gospel, actually. We can tick the doctrinal thing, but functionally our hearts follow other things. It's being a church where it's okay to do that. So when you're feeling low on a Monday morning and you're struggling with self-esteem or identity issues, maybe you've been flicking through Facebook on the way to work and you just don't match up. Well, so it's, it's reminding each other that Jesus is enough. His beautiful death in your place, because he loves you, gives you the worth and value and identity that, that matters, the only thing that matters. You can, you can be secure, you can rest in him because he loves you. Maybe it's Friday when you're, you're feeling your age and your body is aching, suffering and pain or whatever it might be, a reminder that you're falling apart slightly. And maybe it's someone to remind you, do you know what Jesus was raised and he said he would be raised, and he was. And he said he will come back, and he will come back. And in the new creation, uh, our broken bodies or our minds, they will be a thing of the past. 
That is the true and certain hope we have as believers. Maybe it's Saturday and you're lacking patience with somebody. So maybe it's reminding each other of God's extraordinary patience with us. His graciousness, his generosity. That his kindness to us is not conditional. It's to be the kind of church where that's okay. Where that kind of conversation is not a weird conversation, but very quickly we can be talking about, well, what does the gospel mean for us in that context? The truth of Christ is not just a thing that unbelievers need to hear. It's a daily thing for each of us. To keep helping one another see life through the lens of the cross. To have bodily people around us, ideally, who have permission to do that kind of speaking the truth in love. Because the problem online is that you can just avoid people who might challenge you. Or who might say things that you don't like. With a click of a button or a swipe, they are muted or unliked or unfollowed or filtered. And you, unfiltered, sorry, filtered. And you haven't got to worry about them again. You can just get rid of them. But God's plan in the church is to put people, people in our context who can speak the truth in love in such a way that we mature and we get stronger and we grow and we flourish. We, we become adults. Think, say, thirdly, do. Their faith here is a glimpse of what a mature church looks like. This faith is not simply hypothetical. It's an active thing. It works its way out in the real world. It works its way out in how you spend your time and your money and your energy and in what you fill your days with. So verse 12 um, to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up. Or verse 16, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. See, just as God created Genesis 1 and 2, the world to function as we work, so the church each and every person involved, working, serving, loving, encouraging one another to bring us all to maturity. It's a community project. Which means the way God designed it, when you're not involved, we're all weaker. When you stick yourself on the fringe, when the duvet wins the battle or or indeed, simply as you just sideline yourself from the life of the body, everyone else suffers. One of the conversations we often have here is uh, the idea that church is not like a restaurant, but it's much more like a family meal. Thank you. So we don't just go and consume. It works. We don't just go and consume and sit down and leave the money and leave. No, no, we, we all get involved. We've all got gifts the Lord has given each of us for the good of everyone else to grow us up in maturity. And one of the dangers of the I-gen thing, and millennials as well actually, is that individualism is so rampant that we forget we need each other. 
We forget that we work together, that we serve one another. Somewhere like Oxford, that can be a really dangerous and yet a tempting thing. I'd say not so much at Magdalen Road at all, actually. But you can really hang loose with church commitment if you want to. Um, you could go there Sunday morning, there Sunday evening, there midweek, and there for your socialising. Four different churches, four different groups. MRC Sunday morning, perhaps? Probably not. All dates Sunday evening. Ebbs for the midweek group. And you can socialise and hang out with Emmanuel because they're just so cool. <laughs> but we need to be careful about that because it just becomes us consuming church. Just receiving a service rather than being a part of things. Sitting down at the restaurant rather than the family meal. Paul's vision here, I take it, is incredibly countercultural. A diverse people, part of a local body, growing together, loving each other, in a world that idolizes comfort and freedom, thinks of comfort and freedom as ultimate things. The way the Lord seems to design church pushes back on that, doesn't it? The beauty is God did not design it so that we as individuals or or indeed we as a church stay in nursery but that we grow up and we graduate and we enjoy the dignity of responsibility. We enjoy the dignity of being the people that Christ made us to be as we are joined to him. Dignified and responsible as we live for him, as we serve him, as we are engaged in our world. And so the whole body grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let me lead us in prayer. And then we'll respond. Father, you know the reality of our hearts and how easily we can idolise comfort and quiet and rest and peace And those things can so easily become ultimate things. And that can lead to other things. Delaying responsibility for all of us. Pray that you would give us a fresh grasp of the reality of the dignity we have in you. As we work. As we take responsibility. Help us, please, to to think and to speak and to live in an increasingly mature way because your word is transforming us. Please do that for us as individuals, but for us as a church together as well. In Jesus' name, amen.